come and thank you. I guess this is the, the nice thing about being the junior. You get to go first and see how everything shapes out. Um, thank you. I'm, I'm super honored to be a part of this uh, remarkable, remarkable panel in the company of remarkable scholars and activists and leaders. Um, in late September, President Donald Trump called on NFL owners to fire players who took a knee during the national anthem. It was yet another Trump display of vulgar disrespect and abuse. Late night comedy show host Trevor Noah made light of the situation, putting Trump's call in context with critique of ESPN correspondent Jameel Hill, as well as of mass protests across the United States, and he summed up his segment with a light-hearted poem. It's wrong to do it in the tweets. You cannot do it on the field. You cannot do it if you've kneeled. And don't do it if you're rich, you ungrateful son of a... Because there's one thing that's a fact. You cannot protest if you're black. And in that moment of sarcastic commentary that has come to epitomize our most trusted news sources, I was struck with the parallels of my own experience as a Palestinian. Like other Palestinian activists and activists writ large, our protest seems to generate more ire than the conditions propelling us into action. Almost everything we do in protest has been framed as a risk, a threat, a potential Title VI lawsuit for generating discomfort, as if we are mere shadows of an actual body that experiences pain. Consider that during the height of one of the largest prisoner stri hunger strikes in Palestine in April of this year, when 1,000 prisoners inflicted harm on their own bodies to demand basic rights, the Israeli government declared that it would discipline the prisoners for their deviance. Instead of lauding Palestinians long and excessively chastised for not being more like Gandhi, Israel's intelligence minister demanded the death penalty for terrorists who joined the strike. Here in the United States in July 2017, the Senate proposed an anti-BDS legislation to make participation in the boycott of Israel a felony punishable by a minimum civil penalty of a quarter of a million dollars and a criminal penalty of up to 20 years in prison and one million dollars. Far from applauding, our global, nonviolent, grassroots movement, 22 US states have passed anti-BDS legislation to trample from the top down what they cannot defeat from the bottom up. As I listened to Trevor Noah and witnessed yet another attack on black protests, I was struck by the resonance of Israeli and US tactics, governmental and societal, that criticize and criminalize protests in order to obscure the root causes of the violence we protest and as a means to perpetuate an oppressive status quo. Intersectionality invites us to think about the entwinement of our oppression and not the sameness of our condition, about the similarities in the technologies of repression. It also invites us to think about the entwinement of our liberation as inextricable and mutually reinforcing rather than as mutually exclusive. Thinking Palestine intersectionally is, of course, not new. 
It's not new at all. And in fact, most of what I'm going to do today is to demonstrate a history of it and reiterate things that we do know and the junctures that have led us away and back to thinking about Palestine intersectionally. But recent circumstances have made it more urgent and even more compelling than ever. And so I want to trace these uh, these junctures in knowledge production, events on the ground, and activism leading up to the present day. And admittedly, I'll be focusing on my own positionality in the United States. Uh, but I'm starting in the Middle East, but with my own positionality as a, as a caveat. Since armed Palestinian factions took the helm of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1968, the Palestinian struggle for liberation has been a part of, and often central to, global third world struggles against colonialism and neocolonialism. Throughout the 70s, the non-aligned movement considered the liberation of Palestine from Israeli domination as part of the same agenda to liberate Mozambique and Angola from Portuguese rule, as well as South Africa and Namibia from European Afrikaner and German Afrikaner rule, respectively. In 1975, the third committee proposed a resolution that became Resolution 3379, which condemned Zionism as a form of racism as part of the decade against racism that was targeting apartheid South Africa. The PLO was a member of the NAM and a leading force in establishing the 1977 uh, additional protocols that legitimated the right to use armed force against oppressive colonial structures and subject to legal regulation. Palestine is the only nation among these that has yet to achieve liberation, and that is largely because of the U.S.'s unequivocal economic, diplomatic, and military support to Israel. For a progressive left movement concerned with internationalism then and now, the U.S.'s unequivocal support for Israel is emblematic of everything that is wrong with U.S. foreign policy. The 1993 Oslo Accords and the peace process it ushered marked a radical shift away from this anti-subjugation framework. Not only did the PLO rescind the 1975 resolution decrying Zionism as a form of racism, it amended its charter and entered into a peace process that has shifted the framework of thinking about Palestine as a struggle against settler colonial domination into a struggle to achieve peace between two equal parties that are struggling to reconcile themselves, where both parties have to make adjustments and both parties have to negotiate in order to find a common ground. Um, according to a search on ProQuest, this was also reflected in knowledge production. The number of journal articles on Palestine and conflict resolution and peace building spikes from 100 articles for every decade between 1967 and 1989 to 900 records per year between 1990 and 1999. The start of the second Intifada, or the Al-Aqsa Intifada in September 2000, planted the seeds for yet a new shift. The first seven years of peace had increased settlement growth by 100%, had introduced a new system of bypass roads and checkpoints, and demonstrated the permanence of the interim arrangements in the form of autonomy and ghettoized sovereignty. 
The collapse of the Camp David talks precipitated the renewed uprising, which was much more militarized than its pre predecessor in the late 80s. And Israel responded with unprecedented military force that was unavailable to it under occupation law. To meet its needs, its military lawyers created new law for fighting a war against terrorists, and in effect, a new means to maintaining its colonial domination, domination, much as it tried and failed to do along with Portugal during the 1970s to do. But this time, circumstances would change, especially upon Al-Qaeda's attack on the United States in 2001, providing Israel the opportunity to consolidate its new framework in knowledge production, in military operational practice, as well as in diplomatic politics, and subsume the question of Palestine and the U.S.'s broader war on terror. Together with the siege and the murder of Yasser Arafat, the peace process experiment was effectively over. A lot of people are still in denial about this, but it has been effectively over. And the end of the peace process has engendered two distinct trends. One is the framing of Palestine as a national security issue. The other is the return to the anti-subjugation framework that has long framed this issue. Regarding the former, between 1990 and 1999, there was a total of 655 records, scholarly and media, framing Palestine as a security matter. So here we're talking about irregular combat, asymmetric conflict, counterterrorism. That number spikes from 655 over a decade to 5,456 between 2000 and 2009. On the ground, Israel's militarization of the conflict reached its apex when it placed Gaza under a naval blockade and land siege in 2007 and began its systematic large-scale onslaughts in 2008. It's been attacking Gaza since Ariel Sharon and George Bush exchanged letters in 2004, but the large onslaughts that have come to characterize the Gaza Strips begin in 2008. Israel has literally transformed the tiny coastal enclave into what Samara Esmir has described as a colonial laboratory for asymmetric warfare, for weapons, as well as new methods of war, which we'll be discussing in a double panel organized by Lisa Hajjar on Monday. The return to an anti-subjugation framework collided, which is happening at the same time, collided with Israel's security approach in ways that resonated with the decades-long struggle that framed Palestine as a Palestinians, as freedom fighters on the one hand or terrorists on the other. At the 2001 Durban Review Conference on Global Racism, a legacy of the decade against racism inaugurated in 1975, global participants highlighted Israeli apartheid as part of its anti-racist platform. Nadina Nebir, along with other collaborators, led a front of these efforts by authoring a paper, The Forgotten Ism, an Arab-American woman's perspective on Zionism, racism, and sexism. That paper never saw the light of day. Because the United States, in order to protect Israel as well as itself from criticism that it owed reparations for the legacy of slavery, shelved and undermined the entire anti-racist framework and the Durban Review Conference, made racism a factor of, 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 of natural conditions, somehow like a tornado and a hurricane, and not something that our systems have created and uphold.
In 2005, as part of this return, the largest swath of Palestinian civil society organizations launched the global call for BDS based on a rights-based framework and explicitly inspired by the global divestment movement targeting apartheid South Africa. Knowledge production during this time is also reflecting this return. Whereas scholars published 78 articles concerning Palestine as a case study of settler colonialism between 1990 and 1999, that number spikes to 952 articles published between 2000 and 2009, and that's a trend that continues to go grow thanks to several Middle East scholars, including Mezna Kato, Amar Jabari Salamanka, and Karim Rabari. The two trends converge. The two trends of, of military national security and anti-subjugation con converge in the summer of 2014 when Israel launched its largest and most brutal military offensive against Palestinians in Gaza, and when the Black Lives Matter movement congealed in mass protests in Ferguson, Missouri, in response to yet another state-sanctioned murder of an unarmed black boy, Michael Brown. Especially because of activism on the ground, a resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity commenced, and with it, a more acute understanding of Palestine as a case of settler colonialism and a case of structural racialized violence. The systemic and untenable nature of Israel's wars on, Gaza, on the Gaza Strip together with the most right-wing Knesset vowing that there will never be a Palestinian state made ever more clear the fallacy of the peace process and should, for all the still deniers, have, uh, what is that, put that nail in the coffin? On the peace process. I was born here, I still don't get it, these things. I'm still a fob in my expressions. Anyway, um, but this putting to end the fallacy of the priest process actually make, paves the way for a, mo, a more acute understanding of Palestine as a freedom struggle. And the resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity featured delegations to the region, knowledge production, and cultural work, joint protests that culminated in the summer 2016 when the BLM movement endorsed BDS as part of its platform. Significantly, several establishment Zionist institutions denounced the platform, rescinded their support for the BLM, accusing it of anti-Semitism, indicating yet another instance of shutting down critically principled conversations when they refused to exceptionalize and absolve Israel's racism. In response to the backlash, the BLM doubled down on its solidarity with Palestine. And wouldn't, yes, thanks to the BLM. and made clear that demands for freedom would not be conditioned or dictated. This brings us to the present juncture, marked by the ascendance of Donald J. Trump. The Trump administration has waged a bare-faced frontal assault against indigenous communities, black communities, Muslim and Latino communities. It has fomented hostility against Iran and North Korea, rolled back a commitment to climate change, and emboldened white supremacist movements in the United States. Trump, that's not a good thing. <laughs> but I hear you. I'm angry too. <laughs> Trump, for better or worse, has further entrenched the question of Palestine into a progressive left movement driven by an intersexual analysis. And this trend has best been exemplified by the case of our sister and freedom fighter, uh, Palestinian freedom fighter, Rasmiya Oden. A former political prisoner, yes, absolutely. 
Twitter is upset that I have mad love for Resmiya, but I'll say it here on the mic, I have mad love for Resmiya. She is a former political prisoner, a torture survivor, including sexual torture, who spent two decades in the United States empowering Arab immigrant women in the Chicago area to develop themselves as agents of change. She is also accused of planting a bomb in a Jerusalem market that killed two Israeli students in 1968, and she was among the signatories that endorsed the women's strike on March 8, 2017, including Dr. Angela Davis. In response to her endorsement and the Women's March embrace of her, liberal and right-wing publications began an onslaught against her as a convicted terrorist, as an illegal immigrant. In addition, the Women's March platform included the liberation of Palestine as part of its principles, in large part because one of the march's co-founders and leaders is a Palestinian woman named Linda Sarsour. These realities generated a remarkable controversy about Aude and Palestine generally, but more, I mean specifically, but more generally about feminism and whether we should understand it as a single issue matter concerning womanhood. The New York Times ran an op-ed capturing this anxiety. Its author wrote, increasingly I worry that my support for Israel will bar me from the feminist movement, that an aiming to be inclusive has come to insist that feminism is connected to a wide variety of political causes. (laughs) This is so refreshing. This insistence can alienate feminists like myself who don't support all the causes or believe they should be a part of feminism. For example, she writes this. I I couldn't make this up. For example, some who identify as feminists may not agree with the organizers of the international women's strike when they call for a $15 minimum wage. Nor do all feminists necessarily join the strike, uh, join in supporting uh, against the Dakota Access Pipeline. The New York Times would never, all right, as liberal as it, would never publish an op-ed by a self-identifying feminist disparaging a $15 minimum wage or attacking the Standing Rock Sioux Nation. But an attack on Palestine, an attack on Rasmiya is just fine. Indeed, as, as the attacks on the Durban Racism Conference show and as the attack on the BLM demonstrate, attacks on Palestine have historically functioned as an Uh, an entry point to undermine an entire progressive agenda. But in this political moment, there has been little tolerance for the disaggregation of a progressive platform. The attacks on Odeh, the attacks on Palestine, were read as white, liberal, feminist attacks on an entire movement. No one relented, creating an ideological split that suggested that the days for peps, progressive except for Palestine, are almost over, or so we can hope. So we can hope. This is a continuing trend in the United States, and barring unknown circumstances, is likely to become more pronounced. Support for Israel will increasingly become part of a conservative platform and less of a bipartisan issue. Uh, Polls already indicate as much. According to a 2016 Pew Research poll, the share of liberal Democrats who sympathize with Palestinians doubled since 2014. For the first time, more liberal Democrats are sympathetic to Palestinians than they are to Israel. And support for Israel is the least among millennials, demonstrating a telling generational gap. These are positive trends. They also come with a tremendous responsibility and urge us to think about the horizon of Palestinian liberation. For example, 
How might the application of an anti-blackness framework unsettle a stark native settler binary between Jews and Palestinians? How has white supremacy in Israel racialized Middle Eastern Jews, for example, and forced them to deny their Arabness to pass as Israeli, thereby participating in what Ana Shohat has described as an exercise of self-devastation? How does that inquiry reshape coalitions committed to emancipation? Or what other responsibilities does a pro-Palestine movement in the U.S. have to the BLM movement and to resisting ongoing settler colonialism here in North America? Trump removed Alpan in the first month in office, lifted the moratorium on that Dakota Access Pipeline. What responsibility does this movement have to resisting the continuation of its construction? How are we actively and unknowingly reproducing structures of domination even as we seek to resist them in the Middle East? These are provocative questions and demonstrate that intersectionality as a framework has tremendous potential and comes with tremendous responsibility as well. As Dr. Davis reminds us, freedom is a constant struggle and in it we can find the liberation that we are fighting so hard to realize. Thank you.